Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Jesus through Matthew. And so we've been going through Matthew. Uh, and uh, I'll be honest, today we got a lot to cover, so I'm going to go a little bit quick. Uh, but as we start, uh, one of the things that we've just, that I want everybody thinking about as we're, as we're reading Matthew, we're learning about it, is that the Jesus who we often think and we know is not always who is presented in this gospel. That we have inherited faith from our family, our friends. We've even inherited bad faith from social media, from people that didn't like church or Jesus. We've inherited all these things, and they're stuck to us, and we have to be willing to acknowledge them when we go into the text and we learn about it. Uh, One of of the books that I've been reading recently is a book by A.J. Swadoba, and it's called After Doubt, and it's basically uh, the idea of what it looks like to be a Christian, to have doubts, and to walk through that being faithful to Jesus. And one of the coolest things that he's really... Um, tackling that I think is really common is this idea of deconstruction. And what I mean by deconstruction is, uh, you know, maybe you were raised in the faith, and even if you weren't, you have all these ideas of what you think about Jesus, the Bible, the church, etc. And uh, throughout your process, you start to realize maybe things aren't the way that you thought they should be, or maybe you learned something that you didn't really understand, or you don't know why it was that way, or you're starting to hear other opinions, and, and you're kind of rattling, and, and you're trying to figure out your faith in the midst of all of that. And, and I think that in Matthew, we're actually going to get to the point where there'll be some things that, that we learn that we might be like, yeah, I already knew that, or I've heard that, or I know a friend who, who knows all about that. Or you might have things where you're literally like, like what does this really mean for, for me? And, and so in Matthew, I encourage you as we kind of walk through this, and we're going to be here for a while, uh, maybe over a year, <laughs> we'll see, uh, as we're only in chapter three. But uh, as we do it together, I encourage you as we go through each week that this is the opportunity for you to look at who Jesus truly is and, and that's what Matthew's doing. So the book of Matthew, if you want to open your Bible, we have some in the back. We promote thievery here. You can take one home. You can steal it. It's till yours. We also have notebooks. So if you like re- taking notes, there's free notebooks back there. You can go through and take notes. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 3. This is the first book in, in your chronological, chronological order of your Bible, um, the gospel according to Matthew. And Matthew, uniquely enough, is a tax collector. He's someone who has Jewish understanding um, and, and he's actually writing to Jews who in their some way are deconstructing. They, they had been Jews culturally uh, and, and, and religiously, and Jesus, Matthew's writing this after Jesus would have ascended, and so he's sending this story to these Jews who'd be in synagogues trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus in the midst of everything that we know, and is Jesus truly the way? Is, is he what the prophets, which is the second two-thirds of your Bible in the front. Is it what has been foretold? Is it the things that we understand? And so Matthew, when he writes, he's honestly really nerdy. He has so many, um, uh, he takes so many verses from the Old Testament and and throws them into this New Testament. So we're going to cover a couple of those today. Uh, But today we're going to get to talk about a weird guy um, by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, uh, if you're wondering, he's a baptizer, (laughs) the Baptist, and there's a much longer story in the Gospel of Luke that talks all about John the Baptist and Jesus and their cousins and, and their relationship. But Matthew just kind of introduces him. And so in verse 1, we get to, In those days, John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea proclaiming. Now, 
in those days, we basically just, if you, if you were here last week or you're looking just right above your Bible, uh, we were just talking about Jesus living in Nazareth, being known as a Nazarene. And then it says, in those days. So in those days really means like 30 years. <laughs> so we're 30 years ahead. Essentially, Jesus was an infant, young child in, in Nazareth in that verse before. And then now we're in those days, which is like Jesus entering into what we would consider his public ministry, which is the ones that we have recorded. Now, I'll be honest, it's kind of a bummer. Like, you think about, man, what we could have known about Jesus for 30 years, like the stories, right? Like, I was just thinking about some of these, like, I would have loved to know some details about his schooling. Like, was he just brilliant? Did he know all the answers? Was he a teacher's pet? Did students like him? Uh, or, or maybe, like, he learned his father's craft. His father was a carpenter, and he most likely would have learned that as well. That's how the culture worked. And so he's probably pretty good with woodworking. Uh, you know, did he, like, ever nail his finger? Like, you know, stuff like that. You're like, he was a human. Like, he lived life. And what's so fascinating about Jesus and in, in, in the Bible is that Jesus lived about mid-30s, and, and he is the most popular person on earth, like, historically. He's the most talked about person, most written about person. However, we only have in this Bible about 30 to 40 days of his 35, 36 years or less or more, uh, and, we, and it was only three years of public ministry that they're writing about. So everything in here is 30 to 40 days of a three-year public ministry. And it's fascinating because we just forget, like, Jesus lived this life as a human, that he didn't just show up 30, however old, and was like, here I am, let's start doing some miracles. Like, he lived life. And coming into that, Matthew, in, in some ways, is, is not that he doesn't care, but he doesn't include a lot of this that other, other people writing about Jesus do. And so he gets right into it in those days, John the Baptist, and he starts focusing on Jesus' starting his public ministry, being public about what he's doing. And so John here, most of us think of John as just this really great guy before Jesus. He's kind of like the flag bearer. He like walks before Jesus and is like, hey, look, Jesus is coming. But John is actually pretty epic. Uh, he, like if Jesus w- wouldn't have came at the timing he did, John had a large group of followers. He was actually pretty influential, not influential in that like, he owned a like, huge palace, but that he, was, he had a large following of people. People were following him. It wasn't like four d- people. It was like several, lots, lots of people. People were coming from within a 20-mile radius to walk down to the Jordan River to hear about this guy and maybe be baptized. So I don't know if you can imagine this, but if you had found a friend who was like, I don't know, in like Grove City, and you took off a day of work just to go hear that person speak. I mean, they have to be pretty legit, or you'd have to be hearing some pretty crazy things. So John is, is really awesome. He's not just this, like, guy who had a few people, and he was in the river, and Jesus happened to bump into him. Like, he is uh, well-known. In fact, uh, this is a little bit nerdy, but I like to include this. Uh, one of the first-century historians by the name of Josephus, he was a Jew, so he didn't believe in Christ, but he wrote all about Christ. He wrote all about uh, John the Baptist, and he, we have tons of writings from him. And he wrote more about John the Baptist, actually, than he did about Jesus. So John the Baptist was a big deal. And we sometimes forget that. He only gets a few verses. And then, unfortunately, later in the story, we hear about his death. Um, but he, he had a really uh, big following. And so I want to spend a little bit of time on him today. So verse 2. This is, in, my, in, in, in what I would say, is one of the most important overarching verses in the entire book of Matthew. Verse 2 says, this is what he's proclaiming, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. This, is, this phrase, this idea is going to be repeated so many times in Matthew. It's, it's basically Matthew's like goal of the ministry of Jesus, why he's here. And when we think of repent, sometimes we think of like, ah, just being sorry, right? Like when maybe you are 
uh, a little kid and, and your, you and your siblings fought, your mom would be like, tell the other person sorry, and you like, I'm sorry. And then they're like, no, tell it like you mean it, you know? And we think like that's repentance. It's just like, mom's making me do this. I'm sorry. And then they're like, I'm sorry too. And then you keep poking each other, you know? It's not like that. It repentance at this time and even the verbiage that we use is it's, 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 it's reminding uh, the Jews. Remember, Jews are listening to this. They're hearing the words of Matthew. Uh, they're reminded of the Old Testament prophets whose role was God speaking through the prophets to the, to the Israelites, to the Jews, saying, hey, you need to repent, which meant return to God. It didn't mean just say you're sorry and keep walking where you're walking. It meant stop, turn around, acknowledge where you were, and then where you're going. It's not like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and you just keep walking the same route. That's not how repentance works. And so John's call here is, is actually really kind of pervasive. I mean, it, it, it bleeds into our life. It's one thing for me to say, hey, you should, you should really be sorry about the bad things you're doing. It's another thing for me to say, hey, quit doing what you're doing and turn the other way. One is, one is kind of enabling. It's tolerant. The other one is bold. It gets in your face. It cuts to your core. The other phrase that's used in, uh, in this verse is uh, some translations, ours we use the net. It says the kingdom of heaven. Some say the kingdom of God. And this phrase is probably one of the most misunderstood. This is where the whiteboard comes into play. Uh, so for the sake of colors, blue is going to be this idea of the kingdom of heaven of God. I mean, Matthew and myself, we'll use them synonymously. They're the same thing, essentially. So this is K-O-G, okay, kingdom of God. This is essentially what happens when you read the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 1 through 2, there's this beautiful idealistic place with God and uh, Adam and Eve, and they're flourishing in the garden. And then uh, we maybe know the story. They choose to play God uh, instead of allowing God to be God. And what happens is it fractures this beautiful kingdom of God into essentially two spheres. So this is the sinful world. And then God, kingdom of God, is here. And they're separate now. They were essentially just the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is God's presence. And so if you're in the kingdom of God, you're in God's presence. Sin makes it so that God, so that we are not able to be in God's presence because we're basically playing our own God. And so we split these two kingdoms. Now, the beautiful part about the Old Testament that a lot of people don't have the time to, to read is it's this trajectory of God saying, okay, you made this decision. This, this is the ramifications of it. But I'm going to basically find a way um, for you to still be in my presence. And so what he does is his kingdom of God, his holiness, he basically creates an opportunity for the Israelites, which are his chosen people, through Abraham, which will actually be mentioned a little bit, that through this, that says sin, I'm writing small, sorry, that in this space right here, they will be able to be in the presence of God. Now, I'm giving you a really quick overview here. In the Old Testament, this space was basically the temple, the tabernacle, where it was the, holies of, the holy of holies, where basically a priest would go in there, he'd sacrifice something so that it would take the sin of the people and it would remove it, it would place it into this world so that he could be in the presence of God. Now this was the practice for two-thirds of your Bible. In fact, there was, there was several hundred years of silence where this was what they were doing, but God was essentially not really answering them because of their rebellion, because they didn't like this, they didn't follow it, they didn't really want to do it, they didn't believe in it. Uh, there's, you can read all, there's several reasons why. And this is, this is the reality of the kingdom of God and, and sin. And then Jesus steps onto the scene, which is what John the Baptist is telling everyone is happening. And what happens is you basically have the world of sin 
okay, which is like the flesh, the world we live in. There's a bunch of different terms for it in, uh, in the Bible. And then you have the kingdom of God colliding again, but this time where it's colliding is through this person called Jesus. And so he is essentially becoming the sacrifice forever for the atonement, the, the, the replacement of our sins so that we can be in this place. What's so cool about this is Jesus doesn't just stop here, but he starts to go all throughout the world and he starts to basically heal. He starts to restore people's blindness. He starts to, to, to push aside cultural norms and racism and all these types of things. And he's basically creating spots of what would be the kingdom of God on earth. And so he's not just content with living here. He's content with, or he, he's going all over the world and, and he's basically doing all these healings and things that Matthew, Luke, John, and Mark will talk about. So when John the Baptist is saying, hey, the kingdom of, of God, the kingdom of heaven, in this specific translation, is near, it does not mean it is coming. It means it is here. The, 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 the translation of is near, it, I, I would describe it, the best way to put it is it's in your face. It's right here. You can't not acknowledge it. And so what he's saying is the one who is coming, who is bringing, he is a walking temple. Okay, think of Jesus as this giant temple moving around like an RV. <laughs> And everywhere it goes, God's there. That was not the case before. It was only in a set building at the set time with the set procedures. And here comes Jesus into the places that would be the most disgusting, the most outcast, the most tense producing situations. And he walks right into it and he, he starts to just create these little bubbles of the kingdom of heaven. This is what John the Baptist is announcing. And he's preparing our hearts and the people who are listening, the, these Jews who were, who were trying to still live this life, into something new. The only prerequisite for this was that they would repent, they would turn from, they would, they would lean into the heart of God, and they would, then the kingdom of heaven was coming, has come. And so this is the kind of trajectory that we look at as we look at, um, as we look at uh, John the Baptist. In fact, one of the coolest things that I was reading in some of my research that I was studying is that uh, there was a regular synagogue liturgy, that's a fun word, it means like kind of formula, they would say at the time of Jesus that concluded their service with the words of a uh, Kaddish prayer. I'm going I'm to read it. It says, May God let his kingship rule in your lifetime and in your days and in the whole lifetime of the house of Israel speedily and soon. Now, can you imagine Jesus sitting in the synagogue reciting that prayer? Basically like, like hee hee. I'm the one, like, like for years, you know what I mean? Like he knew it and he's just, he's reciting it. They're all like, basically they're like, Lord, come now. Like they're waiting for this Messiah, this one who will, who will usher in God's rule and they think it's going to be through like a hammer and, and war and all this violence. And, and Jesus is just kind of sitting there reciting this prayer year after year, day after day. And, uh, and here he finally is. And the Jewish people listening to this, this, this oral tradition of Matthew, that they're, they're hearing it, they're trying to figure out through this, is this really the Messiah? Is this really the one who God brings? Because it doesn't seem to fit with the one that we thought about. And so what Matthew's doing here, and he's bringing in John the Baptist, is John the Baptist was a prophet. He was the mouthpiece of God. He was announcing that this Messiah, this one whom you've been waiting for, is finally here. And the kingdom is arriving in a way that you, you don't even understand. And so I'm, this is all I'm going to cover right now, but throughout the next several chapters, Jesus is going to start doing these kingdom moments. He's bringing the kingdom on earth, as it is in heaven. That's our prayer. Father, may your kingdom basically come on earth. And so he's doing that throughout his ministry. And Matthew, like typical Matthew, throws in a prophecy that he's quoting from the Old Testament. In verse 3, 
He mentions the prophet Isaiah. He says, the voice of the one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. He's pulling from Isaiah 40, verse 3. All of the Jewish listeners would be like, oh, that's that verse. Okay, that's what, because the, they're, they're, they're knowing it, but they're not always seeing it in the lens of how it applies to Jesus. And so Matthew's pulling in all of this material that he has. Verse 4, though, we get to John the Baptist, which is, uh, he's a unique guy. Now, it's interesting that we, we read this, like Matthew put this in here, but it says, John wore uh, clothes from camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and his diet consisted of locusts and wild honey. So in other words, he's a modern-day hipster. All right, that one, I guess, wasn't funny. I don't know. <laughs> it's all right, you know? 10% 10, 10 of all jokes are trash, so it's fine. All right, <clears throat> John was a weird guy, and uh, the clothing that he wore, I've always wondered, why did he wear that clothing? He didn't need to do that. Like, he could have had a normal, normal outfit. Uh, if you look about the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he, he too wore clothes that were from hair. He wore a leather belt. Uh, and so most Jewish listeners are anticipating this John the Baptist being a, a continuation of Elijah, this great prophet they all knew. And there, so this is the beauty of Matthew. Like, we really get to see that the New Testament has incredibly powerful roots and weight and, and, and depth in the Old Testament. And, and all these Jewish listeners are, are starting to kind of grab all these pieces. And, um, and so even, even his clothing is important because his clothing is, they're thinking, oh, who else wore? Oh, Elijah wore that too. That's really interesting. And, and so Matthew's starting to kind of create this picture for these listeners uh, and I don't really want to get into a ton about he ate locusts and honey, which meant like basically he ate off the land. He was self-sustaining. He kind of went into his own realm, and um, that's basically why they include that. But uh, verse 5, then people from Jerusalem as well as Judea and all the regions around the Jordan were going out to him. This is what I mentioned earlier. People are walking 20-some miles to go see this guy, hear what he has to say, and maybe get baptized in the Jordan River. So we know that he is compelling, that he is creating a gathering of people uh, and actually some of, the, some of his disciples in one of the other Gospels will be Jesus' disciples. They leave John the Baptist and they go follow Jesus. We know of a few of them in the 12, Jesus' closest disciples, but there's actually potentially several of them that left to follow Jesus that weren't in the 12. So John is creating a great weight here. And what is he doing in verse 6? He's baptizing them as they confessed their sins. John was doing something that had never been done, in fact, at this time, uh, the only way to really atone, to, to sacrifice for your sins, was through the temple, which was through very specific rules and laws. And so John's kind of a rogue. He's doing his own thing here. And uh, this, this is not um, a good thing for the guys whose money and job is based around doing that for the people, which are the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these religious leaders. And uh, so cue the bad guys, verse 7 and 8, here they are. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, here we go, this is John, and not the nicest words, you offspring of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, therefore produce fruit that proves your repentance. This group of people, the Pharisees and Sadducees, if you're wondering what do those words mean, they were basically two different groups of religious um, priests, people, religious elites, that, but actually both disagreed. They really hated each other. In fact, this is like one of two times they're actually ever together. And even then, they don't necessarily think they were together. They think they came together, but they don't associate. I mean, this is like hatred among hatred. They did not like each other. They disagreed theologically. And, and so, they're, but they're coming together regardless. They're coming down to see John's baptism. We don't know why, but then apparently, it seems as though they were ready to either call him on something 
or they were, they were scoffing at what was happening. And so John just calls them an offspring of vipers, of snakes. And uh, Jesus will actually use this one as well. Uh, so if you've ever been joking with people about how you're not allowed to say mean things to people, this is kind of a mean thing um, that, that John and Jesus say, but it has deep implications into the Old Testament. I'm not going to go there, but you can, you can Google it if you really want to. But what does it mean? We don't use that phrase anymore, but it has deep Old Testament implications. But here's where he gets to the heart of it. He says in verse 9, Don't think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. He's saying you need to produce the fruit that proves your repentance. And what he's essentially saying was, all of these Israelites, anybody who uh, was a descendant of Abraham, which would be the Jewish people, which uh, God makes a promise with uh, Abraham, and he says, look, your people are going to be my people, and I'm going to create this way for you to be my people in my presence. And so anyone that was of Abraham's descent is an Israelite, is Jewish, and so they were leaning on the promise of Abraham. They were saying, well, we're Jewish, so we're good. Like, God chose us. We're good to go. And remember, Jesus comes onto the scene, and he, he talks about the Jews, but he also brings in the non-Jews, which we call Gentiles. And and this is, this is radical because basically what John is saying is don't lean on your parents' theology. Meaning, if you grew up this way, you can't just claim what someone else believes is your own belief. You have to own it and take ownership of yourself. You can't, you can't play the whole, well, my great-grandma goes to church, so like, I go to church. Like, no, you don't go to church. Or, well, my parents believe, and so I kind of believe. Like, he's saying, hey, you can't play that card. You have to take ownership of where we're at now. And so he's saying your repentance has to be from you. You can't just rely on this because we know that this is changing. And the beautiful thing about this is it attacks the, the basically hypocrisy of the Israelites. But the amazing thing about it is it's accessible to everyone because it's not about works, it's about grace. And so John is starting to, to, to uncover what Jesus will preach exactly the same when he arrives. And he's saying, look, you guys can't rely on the laws, the rules that you've created, the hypocrisy that you have True repentance is not a matter of words and ritual, but of a real life change. And that's what he's getting at here. True repentance is not a matter of words and ritual, but a real life change. And then on top of that, Matthew, this is another, I feel like I should have this little segment where like we play a little music and it's called like Matthew's Nerdy Time. Because uh, it happens almost every week. If you look at the word stones, this is just fun. I think it's, it helps you create the weight of Matthew and, and who he is. Uh, he's using a pun here. The word stone in Hebrew, you can put it up on the screen because I'm going to not pronounce it correctly, is banem, means children, uh, and abanem means stones. In Aramaic, they're both similar as well. And so essentially what he's saying is like even kids, like kids will become followers. So he's saying even these stones, as, as little as these stones, he's kind of making a pun, a wordplay. Just thought you'd enjoy that. But anyways, moving on. Verse 10, it says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There's this idea, and the prophet's talking about, they were, they were this, this tree that was this beautiful tree that they were the Israelites, and it got cut down. And from that tree, though, there will be this, this branch, this graft uh, that is going to be the Savior, that is Jesus. And so what he's saying is, we're going to cut down the trees that are... It's not even we're going to prune. It's like we're cutting down with an axe. It's gone. And we're going to throw them into the fire. Now, this is pretty intense. People get, like, real nervous when you start talking about fire in the Bible because uh, maybe you've grown up at a pretty, pretty fire and brimstone church or you've probably just read things online. But uh, 
I want to get into this idea because, like I said, we're not going to act like this isn't here. We're going to talk about it. So in verse, verse 12, we've got to go a little bit farther. Well, verse 11 and 12, to explain this, he says, I will baptize you with water for repentance, and that's what he was doing. But the one coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. In fact, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clean out his threshing floor and will gather up his wheat into the storehouse, but the chaff he will burn up with inextinguishable fire. Does anybody here have a winnowing fork? No, probably not. Maybe? Justin, he's a farmer. I know what a winnowing fork is. Justin, I should have made you bring it. I don't know why I didn't think about that. Um, so he can, he's going to critique me here because I'm trying to be Mr. Farmer for about 30 seconds. So be nice to me, okay, Justin? Uh, we're all sinners here, okay? Um, so what John is getting at here is there is fire. Fire is this illustration, this imagery of being consumed. It is of the, the justice and the wrath of God that is being poured out. So for instance, here, there's none of that. Here, we decide we want this. When we want this, what we get is we're not allowed to be in God's presence fully. We get the wrath of God. That's how it works. We chose this thinking it was better than what this was. And so God in his grace is, is creating a way through Jesus so that we have the opportunity through grace to be removed from this wrath. And he uses this illustration of uh, threshing and winnowing. And basically what this is, is this is a common understanding at the time. It was a very agrarian society. And so what you would do is you'd gather up grain or wheat, and you would basically have to thresh it, which is like pressing it, and it would loosen up the skin or the outside, which is called the chaff. The chaff was like this light, inedible, terrible not good to eat thing, and then it would, it would basically loosen the grain that they actually wanted to take from that. And so the, th the, the threshing was essentially the loosening of it. The winnowing was the fork that you would stab into it, and you'd shake it, and all the chaff would fly, and the grain would be sorted out. And at the end of the day, you'd have all your grain so you can make things and live on bread. If you had the chaff, it would not work because the chaff is inedible, and it tastes terrible, and it's not good. So John, uh, John is using this illustration and here's what I want you to point out is the priority of John. If you're thinking, what's the point of John? What's the purpose? What's the role? His primary thing is what he is doing is he is threshing. He is essentially pressing on the Israelite people. He's saying, hey, the very things that you think are right are not. In fact, what you're doing is becoming what you're doing and not about the heart of it, which is the heart of God and why God created this. God's heart was, I want to be with my people even though they can't keep a promise. And our heart was, yeah, no, we're good. We're going to make a golden calf instead. That's kind of how we are. We're going to choose things over you instead because we think we know better. And, and so what happens is uh, John the Baptist is reminding us and he's pressing and he's saying, look, repentance is the start of this kingdom that will come. The entrance into this kingdom is, is a turning from being God yourself and thinking you're a better God and it's acknowledging the one who is God, who in the Old Testament was Yahweh, and now Yahweh is Yahweh saves, and he's right in front of you, and he's here, and he's now among you as a walking temple. And so he's threshing this idea out. He's setting the scene for Jesus. And what's fascinating, if you can pull up the slide, is the similarities between John and Jesus' preaching, okay? This is just like a nerdy list. I think it might be two slides, actually, but these are, these are the things John says, and then if you look at all the other quotes, those are all the times Jesus mentions the exact same thing. They're in complete tandem with it. The only difference is John is threshing. He's loosening up the chaff. He's creating the tension that we need in our hearts. And then Jesus walks in, and he is the one who takes the grain, and he sorts it out. He takes the winnowing fork, whatever that is, and he stabs it in the grain, he shakes it up, 
and he will sort out the grain. And that is, that is the call of, of following Jesus, is, is the grain. He's saying, hey, Israelites, through this, we are finding the chaff and the grain. And here's the thing, though, and here's the hardest part to understand. Here's the thing that gives people problems, is they don't like the idea of there being chaff burn up. They don't like the idea that there are people who will essentially be burn up. They will actually, God will honor what they want, their own world, and they, when, they, when they want what they don't want, they have to face the consequences, which is not in God's presence, which is the wrath of God, which is hell or, or their own world that they want, essentially. And so what's happening here, though, and why it's so important is, and why it's actually a good thing, it's about judgment, but it's a good thing. It's repentance for good is because the grain cannot be sorted without the removal of the chaff. And God and Jesus, when he's coming into this kingdom, he, he's not creating this, this list for everyone to have to do, do, do. He's creating himself a person who is accessible to anyone. And he says, come and basically be this grain that will be used for the kingdom. That we are little pieces of grain throughout the world full of sin, even today. And we are image bearers. We are kingdom, uh, we're kingdom warriors. In fact, churches are like kingdom outposts, little circles of the kingdom. And in that, we get to live out and show people the, the beauty of the grain, the purpose of the grain without the chaff that, that makes everything useless if it's not sorted. And so John is calling us, he's calling those people, he's calling the Jewish listeners, he's calling us now and today to evaluate ourselves, where is our heart in all of this? What, what are we pursuing? What, are, we, are, we, are we sticking to the law for for pride? Are we making gods of our own things? Or are we repenting? Are we turning from? Are we acknowledging the kingdom of God here now? Are we acknowledging Jesus and his presence? Let's move on to Jesus' baptism. This is, uh, to be honest, it's almost like two sermons. I wish I could go back and come back up and be like, sermon number two. But it's a few verses, but it's a different kind of story. But it ties into this whole idea of baptism Verse 13, Jesus comes from Galilee to John to be baptized, and John doesn't want to do it. He says, I I need to be baptized by you, and yet you come to me. And so Jesus replies, let it happen now, for it is right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then John yielded to him. Now, one of the biggest questions that I ask, maybe you ask, is why did Jesus have to get baptized? We know that when he was born, he was conceived of the Spirit, and so the Spirit is present among Jesus before he shows up here. He didn't like need this spirit. Um, in fact, it's interesting because John says that they're, they're repenting of their sin, of the forgiveness of their sin. Well, we know that Jesus was sinless on earth, and so he didn't sin, so he didn't need to be baptized. And so if he didn't need to be baptized, he didn't need to repent. He was following the will of the Father. He didn't need to like turn away. Why is he doing this? And this is, this is what we remember of the beauty of Matthew 1. Matthew says, Jesus is the Messiah, He's, um, God, he's Yahweh saves. He's the one saving who is God and will save. And he's also God with us. He is Emmanuel. He is the kid who got to giggle in, in, uh, in religious Torah school whenever they would read the prayer. And he was like, I'm that person. But he's also the one who is willingly entering into the people that he will save as a representative. He's not far off. He's not distant. He willingly goes right into what they are about, who they are, and he shows them the kingdom of God on earth through the Israelite people. He's showing the law that God had created and intended for on earth. And so what he's doing is he's, he's bringing to reality the kingdom, and he's doing this through going through baptism. That, uh, that one scholar said that um, as he prepares for his own role in bearing their weaknesses and eventually giving his life as a ransom for many, 
through his blood, he is to be a representative so that he, and he may be first identified with them. God is with us. He is human. And so he's baptized, showing this reality of, of the people in the heart of the Israelites and how it was gone astray and how he is, he is stepping into our mess. We found out his genealogy is a mess. His birth story is a mess. His first few, day, his first few years on, on earth is a mess. People are trying to chase him and kill him and kill his mother and all this. And now he's coming in here and he's got all these Israelites who are a mess. Jesus is like literally just constantly in a mess of people because what he's doing is he's in a world of sin. But he's taking moments like this and he's giving us glimpses of the kingdom. He's bringing it to reality into our minds and hearts. And so there's this beautiful depiction. It's, it's extremely heady and theological. I'm not going to get into it, but we see Jesus is affirmed by the Father doing what he needs to be doing, taking delight in him. And we see the Spirit ascend on him like a dove. It wasn't an actual dove, you're wondering. The Spirit is not a dove flying around. Even though at weddings, they like to do that. Um, but it's all three, the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, all in, in unity together. And, and Matthew is just doing kind of one closing, like, hey, reminder, this is the one we're talking about that you knew about in Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 42, and it says, Here's my servant whom I support, my chosen one in whom I take pleasure. I have placed my spirit on him, and he will make just decrees for the nations. So this is Matthew chapter 3, and we are getting into basically this idea, this, this kingdom, this kingdom of God present as, through Jesus, God with us, and he's starting to establish, uh, he's going to establish dominion over, over earth, and honestly, I'll give you a spoiler, but the end, of, the end of the world is not, the end of us is not like, like us floating into heaven. You know, like, oh, we die, we just, we float into like the heaven. But it's actually, it's actually the world of sin being made completely into the kingdom of God. And so God is making all things new and all things right. And in that, we're participating in that as we, we bring the kingdom of God to the people here and now. That's, that's the, the biggest bummer about the American church is I think we forget our, 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 the power the Spirit gives us now, the presence the Spirit gives us now to, to do this. Now, we're not Jesus, but these, think of a church like a kingdom outpost. We are to be the, the good of God in, in the world. People are, are, should be able to see the things that we do, the people we are, and we're broken, so we do screw up plen- plenty of times but that we are ones who know where our hope comes from, that we, we, we usher um, the things of God into the world through, through his power. And so that's, that's honestly, if you're wondering, what does this all mean to me? Like, where is the application here? I'm not the Jewish listener. I'm not, I'm not present in this baptism. What does this mean to me? Is a reminder that, that the repentance of our hearts is, is, is paramount, the repentance of our hearts daily, and that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is in front of us. And, and you might be thinking, well, Jesus is up there. But Jesus didn't just leave up there. He left us the advocate for him, the spirit. The spirit is here among us. It is not that I should pray that the spirit would come into this room. Um, it is that the spirit is here now. The spirit is, is among us and here. And we, we should live like it. Whether we're weird and we eat locusts and honey like John the Baptist, um, which to be honest, I kind of respect him because like, he knew his lane. He was like, this is my call and I'm going to do it. I don't care about being cool. I don't care about doing everything else the way that everyone else does it. I'm going to do the way of, of Jesus. And he is a perfect model of, of a servant of Jesus. And so John the Baptist starts this threshing. Jesus is coming in with his winnowing fork. And it is so that the grain has purpose and usefulness in the world that is God's, 
that is his, that is the presence of God. And so as we close today, I want to invite the band up. We do this every Sunday. Uh, we, we partake as a church, if you're a follower of Jesus, in something called the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've heard it known as Eucharist, bread and cup. There's several names. But essentially what the goal of this is, is as we gather as a community, we have a great band, great t- story, maybe even a great teaching. But at the end of the day, this is what we are here for. It's to remind ourselves of where we are at and the repentance of, of following Jesus. And so the, the bread, the juice, and the cup that's in one of those little containers that's in the back, you can grab one, that is a reminder of the blood and the sacrifice that Jesus spills so that the kingdom of God is available on earth among us in our hearts. And so this is a reminder for us. And so uh, we're going to give you about a minute to, if you want to take that on your own. Uh, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is your opportunity. And I would also say uh, one of the things we've been trying to encourage that we, we want to be a praying church. And so we have people in the back that would love to pray for you. Uh, they're praying over you, even if you're not showing out. But we'd love for you to go in the back and get prayer for anything you can think of. We'd love to help you through that. And so you have about a minute or so to take communion if you'd like uh, and also receive prayer. And then we're going to sing one last song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.